0: Good morning, everyone. I'd invite you to find your seats. We're going to begin. This is uh, Lesson 4 of our study on the 12 Marks of a Healthy Church. We're going through Mark Dever's book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, with three bonus marks added. Today, we will be covering Chapter 2 of Mark um, Dever's book, entitled, Gospel Doctrine. I seem to remember that this title was different in previous versions. Maybe I'm wrong. Gospel Doctrine is, is the updated title here of the, of the newest edition. Let's open in a word of prayer, and then we'll progress through this lesson. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessing of the Lord's day. We thank you for your word, which is truth. It is filled with truth of all kinds, and we know that your word reveals to us Who you are, and we thank you for this precious gift that you, O God, have created us and you have revealed yourself to us in history, in the scriptures, supremely through the Son. We give you thanks, O Lord. I pray that our thoughts concerning you would be true and that we would live in light of these truths. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The outline today is very thin, isn't it? Um, I ran out of time and steam. Uh, this last week, and so I did not produce a detailed outline. Instead, you have just a very general outline of this chapter, and there's room for you to take notes there. Uh, it will not be difficult to just move through this chapter, though, and to highlight um, the the main points. I wanted uh, to remind you that sort of what we're doing here with this book, at least for me and, and in a way for all of us, especially those who were with Emmaus from the very beginning... We're kind of taking a walk down memory lane, and um, I wanted to remind you that this book was in my hands um, prior to our planting of Emmaus, and it was impactful, um, so much so that the first three sermons were a presentation of these nine marks, three at a time, um, in brief, uh, but it, it, it was, uh, that was done so as to just communicate the direction in which we were planning to head as a brand new congregation. And so it's fun, kind of, uh, and interesting to look back upon these things and to see that they were impactful. I think in some ways we need to grow in in, in some of the marks that are presented still. Uh, In other ways we might look at some of these marks and say, this is very basic. You know, this is basic in some ways we have grown beyond uh, the things presented here. And I would say that that is somewhat true as it pertains to chapter 2 here on Gospel Doctrine. Uh, The thing that Dever is going to do is to present us with a few basic truths about who God is. And he is going to make the case that if you get the doctrine of God right, you're going to get a lot of other things right. But if you get the doctrine of God wrong, you're going to get a lot of things wrong. I'm not criticizing this book. I think it's a wonderful point that he is making. And I think there are a lot of people, who who, and, and us too, we need to be reminded of this. But there are a lot of people that need to hear this. Because as I was reflecting upon our past, I'm thinking... You know what? It's true. This was profound Um, when I first read it in the sense of me being able to look at our current situation, our current church situation and thinking, my goodness, we don't even have a solid grasp on the doctrine of God. If you were to ask the question, who is God? What is He like? I think we would answer, and I'm saying we collectively um, and not necessarily individually, but I think we would, would really get the answer quite wrong. And so I think it is a very good approach that Deborah is taking. He is trying to nudge the church in general towards greater health. And he's saying if we are going to be more healthy, we really need to get our doctrine of God correct because it is going to have an impact upon so many other things. Um, In the next lesson, I just wanted to really quickly look ahead. I'm going to present another bonus mark. So lesson five will be bonus mark number two on confessional subscription. So just to give you a heads up, I'm going to make a case in the next lesson for something much more robust than just a basic doctrine of God. I think not only do we need to have a basic doctrine of God well established, we need to be more robust in our theology. We need to... Subscribe to a confession of faith, not a brief statement of faith, but a robust confession of faith so that the church has a clearly articulated doctrinal position that is uh, true to Scripture and has stood the test of time. Nevertheless, this chapter here, Mark 2, Gospel Doctor, is a very good chapter, and it will be good for us uh, to to consider uh, today. He begins in the introduction by uh, reflecting upon an experience that he had, this is Mark Dever. Uh, when teaching a, surprisingly, I think he said a a doctrinal, a doctoral seminar about God. So this is Ph.D. or D-men level instruction here. And he remembers a student making a comment like this. Uh, He liked to think of God as wise, but not meddling, compassionate, but not overpowering resourceful, but never interrupting. And Dever says, after going on for a bit, he concluded, this is how I like to think of God. And then Dever's response, and I think this is why I like him, (laughs) was, thank you, Bill, for telling us so much about yourself, but we are concerned to know what God is really like, not simply about our own desires, why would we ever assume that merely because we want something to be a certain way, it therefore must be that way? And I think Dever really puts his finger on a major problem uh, in, in the church today, and that is that people really they, they want to believe certain things about God or Christian theology in general uh, based upon their emotions and preferences and are unwilling, in fact, to submit themselves to the Word of God. Uh, to God's self-revelation, to God's revelation concerning other truths. I I think it is a major problem uh, within the church today, and and that's the thing that Dever is putting his finger on here. He he doesn't tease it out to full-blown confessional subscription in the way that I think we need to, uh, but he does nudge the church in a very good direction here by putting his finger on the problem. There are a lot of professing Christians who Who don't even have a proper view of of who God is, because they will not submit themselves to the Word of God, but they instead are driven by their own passions, desires, and preferences. And so Dever asks the question, when you hear the word God, what do you think of? I am not asking how you like to think of God, but how, for instance, do you reconcile in your mind the warm and loving God of Christmas with the God of final judgment? Because the scriptures reveal both, that God is love and that God is also just. He is holy and just and will judge uh, through Christ at the, end of, at the end of time. He has a B.B. Warfield quote here on page 68 of the newest edition. B.B. Warfield, a great Reformed Presbyterian, uh, pado baptist theologian um, from back in the day when Princeton was still on the right track, or barely so. Uh, B.B. Warfield warned against this when he wrote, "...it is not a matter of small importance for the servant of Christ," speaking of ministers of the gospel, "...to begin to seek to please men in the gospel which he offers them. Doing so, he ceases to be Christ's servant, performing his will, and becomes the slave of men. Doing so, he is no longer the teacher of the truth to men." but the learner of falsehood from men. That's a very pointed statement from Warfield, and and very true. He is here criticizing ministers who instead of standing for the truth and teaching the truth to the congregation um, with conviction, truth drawn from the very word of God, as a minister of the word of God, they begin to placate to the desires of the congregation. Therefore, they are shaped not by God and His word, but but by men. And I agree, it it was a problem, I guess, in Warfield's day. It's probably always been a problem, but it seems to especially be a problem in our day. And we've talked about this before. I think one of the major temptations for ministers of the Word of God is to make growing their churches large their primary concern. And, of course, one way to grow churches large is to give the people what they want. You know, give them what they want. Don't ever say anything offensive to them so as to drive them away. Give them what they want. But we end up creating something other than a church that is filled with the truth of the gospel when we do this. And so B.B. B. Warfield warns against this temptation. According to the Bible, the truth about how we should live is not just about how we treat each other. The most important things about us are what we know and believe to be true about God. It's what we know and believe about Him that determines how we relate to Him and then how we in turn relate to one another. And so, as I said, Dever is not uh, seeking to uh, establish a really thorough and well rounded confession of faith here in this chapter he 's just simply talking about let 's just let 's start with god let 's get this right because if we get this right we 're going to get so many other things right. We have to think truly about God, and so he is uh, trying to nudge the church towards health in this regard in this chapter, he says, "I want to make a simple point: expositional preaching serves a church and helps to make it more healthy." Only if what is preached is true. And so I did emphasize this in the previous lesson, which was a bonus mark about the need for theological or catechetical preaching and teaching. Uh, Remember I said that expositional preaching can be done well. It could also be done very poorly. Uh, Just because we move through chapters and verses sequentially does not mean we are necessarily going to be teaching the truth of God's Word. We have to interpret Scripture rightly, and we have to take into consideration what the whole Word of God says about any given subject when we preach on a particular verse. And so Dever agrees with this. We need to make sure that what is preached today is true. And he later says, what we need today more than ever are churches that preach the truth about God and the gospel. So he comes back to this. Let's get God right and let's get the gospel right, he adds. And then Dever asks the question on page 69, so what is the gospel? And so he's talking about more than the doctrine of God here. What is the gospel? And all of this should sound very, very familiar to you, Um, Because you hear this method of preaching from me often, uh, where we articulate the gospel, not just in a very succinct way, but from the whole of Scripture, telling the story of redemption in the terms of creation, fall, The first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, God's accomplishment of our redemption in Christ Jesus, the application of it to us by the power of His Holy Spirit leading up to the consummation of all things and the new heavens and new earth. And so you've heard this from me over and over again, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. It's the story of the gospel that is told, not just from a few isolated texts in the New Testament, um, even though it is sometimes needed for us to present the gospel in that way, Uh, to take people through, let's say, the Romans' road. Have you ever heard this approach where you just... There's a few verses in Romans that you can use to kind of uh, tell this story in a very succinct way. There's a place for that. But here, uh, Dever is helping us to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is in fact a story that is told uh, from Genesis to Revelation. It's the story of the Bible articulated in these terms. He even says on page 71 that there's different ways to tell this story using different terminology or themes, and he picks this one. He says, the Scriptures are about the Exodus. The Scriptures are about the Exodus. You've heard me say to you, um, well, that the Scriptures really are about the Kingdom of God. You've heard this from me. Uh, Offered, promised, prefigured, inaugurated, consummated. Just recently I said to you, the Scriptures are really telling the story of the establishment of the Temple of God, Those same terms can be used. Offered, promised, prefigured, inaugurated, consummated. Here, Dever says that the scriptures are about the Exodus. And all of these things are true. They all all cohere with one another. These are not contradictions. There's different ways to tell this story. But really, the scriptures tell the story about God um, dwelling in the midst of his people. And his people... Dwelling in His presence and enjoying His glory forever and ever. So, whether you want to frame it in the terms of kingdom, with God as king in the midst of His people who worship and serve Him, or temple, with the glory of God filling His people and His people enjoying His presence forever and ever, or the very story of the Exodus, which is a story about all of this, right? Uh, the redemption of God's people from bondage and the And the temple being placed in the midst of them, then being brought into the promised land, uh, which is the kingdom of God prefigured on earth. All of these are valid ways of telling the story of the gospel. The scriptures are about the Exodus. That Exodus motif, that Exodus motif is very central uh, to the story of of Scripture and to the gospel. Uh, You've heard me say this before that really in the Exodus we have an earthly picture of the spiritual and heavenly and eternal. Exodus that Christ has accomplished for us. It was an earthly picture, a a foreshadowing, a prefigurement of what Christ has done. So Christ has come as the second and greater Moses. Christ has come as the second and greater Joshua. He has redeemed us Not from bondage to Pharaoh, but from bondage to Satan himself and to sin and to the power of death. He has redeemed us from that reality of which the Pharaoh himself and Egypt was an earthly picture. And so Dever is perfectly right to say that this would be one way to tell the story of the Bible in the terms of the Exodus. And then he returns back to really a proper doctrine of God. And I think he attempts to show how important it is for us to get the doctrine of God right, because if we get this right, we will get so many things right. If we get this wrong, we will get so many things wrong. He wants us to see that the Bible teaches us that God is creating, He is holy, He is faithful, He is loving, and He is sovereign. So he picks these five things to put forward. This is not an exhaustive doctrine of God. We're not even dealing with the question of what is God, um, the most pure spirit, triune And yet, one. But rather, here we are talking about uh, his uh, characteristics and his actions in in history, his relationship to us in history. It's a good approach that he's taking here, and I appreciate it uh, very much. Um, Something came to my mind and then escaped my mind. What things are chiefly contained in the Holy Scriptures? What do the Scriptures mainly teach? Anyone? The catechism question. Do you got it? What do you think? What do, what do the Scriptures teach mainly? What two things? You're, you're right. You're recognizing that I'm actually referring to a catechism <laughs> question, aren't I? You could hear it, and that's good. What man ought to believe about God and what duty God, what duty God requires of man. Does that sound familiar? So these are the things that are chiefly contained or mainly put forth in the pages of Holy Scripture. Uh, what we ought to believe about God and what, God, what duty God requires of us. Those, those two things. And so, again, I just wanted to emphasize that Dever is really honing in upon that. That this is one of the primary things that the Scriptures reveal. What it is that we are to believe about God. And also, what duty He requires of us. And of course, the two things are interrelated, aren't they? They're very much interrelated. So we had better have a right understanding of God. First of all, He wants us to know for certain that the God of the Bible is a creating God. And of course, um, this is a reference to what God did at the beginning of time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God is the creator of all things. Is that basic to you? It, it should be basic to you. But have you ever taken the time to think about the implications? If God is the creator of all things, seen and unseen, think about all of the implications. What then do we owe to Him as His creatures except obedience, love, reverence, worship, If God is the creator of all things seen and unseen, then He is supreme over us. He is creator, we are creatures. So we can just think about this truth here that God created all things seen and unseen in the beginning and tease out the implications of that for us as creatures. He is big and we are very small. (laughs) He is supreme and we are not. Uh, He is the central figure in human history. He is the one who is deserving of all glory, honor and praise. Not us. This doctrine, this basic doctrine that the first verse in the Bible reveals... Uh, Should shape our lives in a very profound way. But later Dever goes on to say that it's not only the creation of the heavens and the earth that we are talking about here, but the, the creation of His people. Man fell into sin and yet God brings His people into existence out of nothing as it were. Out of death and darkness and sin and bondage, God calls the people out of the world to Himself. Notice He spoke the world into existence in the beginning and He calls or speaks a people into existence uh, by the word of his power. He called Abraham out of, out of paganism and out of a, a domain of darkness to make him into a special and chosen people, the people of Israel. He created Israel by bringing them out of darkness in bondage to Egypt and out of bondage to the evil one pre- uh, you know, symbolized there by the Pharaoh himself. "...to make them into a great nation. He brought them into existence out of nothing by the word of His power." Think of what Moses did. He went and spoke on behalf of God, spoke the word of God to the Pharaoh, declared that this and that plague would come, and they came. God delivered His people out of Egyptian bondage, not by the power of the sword, but by the power of His word. By the power of His word." And so we're to see that the God of the Bible is a creating God as it pertains to the heavens and the earth in the beginning, but also as it pertains to the creation of His own people in the world. And then, of course, uh, this, uh, this comes to the very doctrine of, of election or predestination and the doctrine of effectual calling, which we confess to be true in our confession of faith. Why is it that you are a child of God? Why is it that you are a citizen in his kingdom? Why is it that you are are, um, a stone in his temple, as we've talked about? Why is it that you are here today? It is not because of you and your initiative. It is not because you have created this faith within yourself or this union with Christ. It is because God has brought life to you. He has given you the gift of faith. He has so worked in your heart and regenerated you so as to make you his child. He has regenerated you so that you might willingly believe and repent from turn from your sins and believe in the Christ. Uh, He is uh, the creator of all things seen and unseen but we also see that he is active in recreation too. He has brought his people into existence and we know that the story of the Bible will conclude uh, with this a new heavens and new earth. So the original creation was ruined by sin but God is now working to recreate. He will bring into existence a new heavens and new earth and He will fill the new heavens and new earth with His people whom He by His grace has brought into existence. You see what Dever is doing here. He's saying this is just basic doctrine. This is just fundamental truth regarding who God is. And yet, I'm sure you are sitting here right now thinking so many who profess faith in Christ today would be enraged at this idea. The the idea that it is God who creates faith in us. That it is God who renews us enabling us to believe. You know how upset Christians can get, professing Christians can get when this doctrine of election or predestination and effectual calling is presented to them. And yet Dever is setting this forth as basic or fundamental. Doctrine. Secondly, we must know that the God of the Bible is a holy God. Not only is he creating God, he is also a holy God. He is not morally indifferent. His holiness shows itself in his love, in his righteousness, and in his truthfulness. There is no defect in God's character. He is morally pure and perfect, and he is always, without question, just. Because he is holy, he is. Just, He always does what is right. He will certainly punish all sin. He will punish all sin. The truth is that God is holy and we are not, Dever says on page 75. <clears throat> so what does this mean? If God is holy and will certainly punish all sin, and if we are sinners, then what does this mean for us except that we really, really, really need a Savior? We need a Savior. And as we learn the story of the Bible, we come to see that indeed God has punished all sin, even the sin of those who are forgiven, by placing our sin upon Christ and punishing it it there at the cross. So, if your sins are taken away, if you have been forgiven, it is not because God has just disregarded your sin it is not because He has just set it to the side and ignored it. God would not be just, would He, if He did that. It is not just for a judge to simply ignore a crime committed. That would be injustice. God is just, and if you are forgiven in Christ Jesus, it is because your sin was placed upon Christ as He hung on that cross, and He bore the wrath of God in your stead. God is a holy God. He is a perfectly just God. He will punish all sin. And if you are in Christ Jesus, your sin has been has been paid for by Christ as He hung on that tree. Uh, all sin will be paid for at the end of time and at the final judgment. Either the sin has been imputed to Christ, He has bore it, or it will be paid for by the sinner Himself, if not in Christ Jesus. And that is a a terrible thought to consider, but it is certainly true. And yet so many Christians, as you know, do very much love to talk about the love of God. And so do we, by the way. God is love, and we will come to that in just a moment. But they do not like to talk about the holiness of God or the justice of God, especially as it pertains to His just judgments. But this is the God of the Bible. It is the God of the Old Testament and it is the God of the New Testament because God does not change. Uh, sometimes I forget how prevalent teachings like this are in the church. Did, have any of you been a part of a church before in the past where this this notion um, is prevalent? That the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different in some ways. As if there was a a change or a transition in God of sorts. Have any of you been in a church like that before? Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I forget, because we've been in this Reformed and Baptist world for some time, but it's a very prominent idea. Uh, The God of the Old Testament was wrathful. The God of the New Testament is love and grace. Think about the problem that that causes when it comes to the doctrine of God. (laughs) Uh, We will not get into this here, because this is a very basic and summary statement regarding the doctrine of God. Uh, But what do you know to be true about God? Does He change? He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Within Him there is no shadow or variation due to change. God does not change. For God to change would mean that He is not God. Uh, God does not change. We do. God does not. And we've covered that before in other classes. So, God is a holy God. He is a just God. We are not holy. We really, really need a Savior Christ Jesus is that Savior. He has atoned for sins. This idea of sacrifice is found all over the pages of Holy Scripture. Even in the very earliest chapters of Genesis, shortly after man's fall into sin, we see that blood is shed and that God's people in the world are offering up sacrifices to Him. What is that about? Why is this theme present from Genesis 3 onward? Genesis 4, there it is, Why why is blood being shed? Why are animal sacrifices being offered up from the moment of the fall of man into sin? It was a picture of the Christ to come and it was communicating this message that atonement would need to be made, a substitute would need to be provided for the sins of God's people should they be reconciled to Him. So the idea of sacrifice is innate in the Bible. It's found everywhere. And we need to see that it all culminates in the cross of Christ. That He died there not to set an example for us, um, but to actually do something uh, to atone for sins and to appease God's wrath. By the way, it is really for this reason that we say that atonement is limited. As Calvinists, as five-point Calvinists, there are verses that indicate that atonement is limited. Christ laid His life down for uh, the sheep. His love was set upon his bride, the church. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. There are many Scripture texts that speak to this. Even in the text in Matthew 26 that I use often in the Lord's Supper, he laid down his life for many, not for all. Um, So there are many texts that teach limited atonement, but really it is the doctrine of the atonement itself as rightly understood from the whole of Scripture that leads us to this position. Christ atoned for the sins of those given to Him by the Father in eternity past. He finished the work so that their sins are taken away by Christ. Uh, it, it was finished. It was accomplished by Him on the cross. There is nothing left to do. He appeased the wrath of God on behalf of those given to Him by the Father in eternity. He atoned for their sins. Are there Scripture texts that use the language of all? Yes, but all has to be defined by context. And, the context consistently shows us that there is one Savior for the whole world and not many Saviors. In other words, He laid down His life for the world. God so loved the world, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles also. And He laid down His life for all kinds of people, for rich and for poor, for powerful and for weak. There is one mediator between God and man, not many mediators for different. Ethnicities or types of people, but one Lord and one Savior. And so we need to know what kind of people we are. And that is really where Dever goes here in this section on the holiness of God. He wants to emphasize that God is holy and we are not. What kind of people are we? He says on page 79. How you answer that question will determine what kind of church you set up. I love his frankness here. It's very succinct, isn't it? What kind of people are we? as as human beings in general. And how you answer that question will determine what kind of church you set up. If you think people are basically good, he says, then a church is simply a place where we seek encouragement or perhaps the enhancement of our self-esteem. We need simply to take the good that's in us and build on it. However, if you think that something is radically wrong with us as humans, this is the doctrine of total depravity, um, if you think that God is something, that something is radically wrong with us as humans, if you think that we are spiritually dead, guilty before God, separated from Him and under His judgment and wrath, then you are going to build a very different kind of church. You are going to build a church where you pray for God to move supernaturally, where the gospel is presented clearly, and where people are regularly called to believe in Christ. Churches need to call people not merely to improve, but to repent. And not to believe in ourselves, but to believe in Christ. There is so much truth and goodness in that statement there. And I don't necessarily remember reading this statement 11 or 12 years ago, but I can imagine that when I did, I thought, this is the problem. <laughs> this is the problem. We do not have an accurate Understanding of who God is in His holiness, nor do we have an accurate understanding of who we are in our depravity. Therefore, we spend so much time trying to uh, appeal to the sinful appetites of, of people and to make church appealing to them, you see. Um, the fact is that the true church and the true gospel is never going to be appealing to those who are dead in their sins. It will not. They will hear it as foolishness. But to preach the gospel faithfully, those who are made alive by Christ or being called by Christ, they will hear that gospel and they will love it. And so as ministers of the gospel, we simply need to be faithful to preach and teach and to stop with all of this man-pleasing, you see. Um, I, I, I believe that deeply and, and I hope you know that and, and I hope you can see it. Uh, we're simply going to do what God has called us to do and preach the message that God has called us to preach and we'll see what the Lord does. We'll see what the Lord does. But we do need to be faithful to call sinners to repentance and to proclaim this gospel. The God of the Bible is a faithful God is the third point that is made here. He is faithful. He is faithful. This means He is constant. He is, he is a God who keeps His promises. Um, but The question must be asked, faithful to what? Faithful to what? I just said, he keeps his promises. Well, then another question has to be asked, what has he promised? What has he promised? What do you think that some might think when they hear the words that God is faithful? Mike, I am getting blown up on the Emmaus number. Are you able to log into Google Voice? Or could you just answer this for me? Thank you. I think it's like the fifth call, so I'm not sure what that's about. Faithful to what I I was just asking the question, what do you think that some people think when they hear that God is faithful? Um, That might be erroneous. I will take a breath right now and let you uh, respond. How do you think that some might interpret the, the phrase, "'God is faithful,' in an erroneous, erroneous way. Chad? God will, give you you want. God will give you whatever you want. Yes, can you see how it can be taken that way? God is faithful uh, to you and to your desires. He will bring about your desires. Um, God is faithful and certainly God would never allow His children to suffer in this world. Um, I sometimes wonder if people who believe that have ever read the Bible. (laughs) Lots of suffering endured by God's precious and beloved people. Um, He's faithful to keep His promises. Well, what has He promised? Some people have been taught that He has promised health, wealth, prosperity, protection. Um, Well, He's promised to bless me. So there's another word. What, What does it mean to be blessed of the Lord? Does it mean that we have all of the earthly pleasures of this life heaped upon us always and without interruption. Is that what it is to be blessed? Or will come to it. God has set His love upon you. Well, but what is, what is it to be loved of God? What is it to be beloved of Him? So we have to define these words. What does it mean for God to be faithful? What does it mean for Him to keep His promises? What does it mean for Him to bless His people? We have our own notions about that. We have to answer these questions from the Holy Scriptures. And is, is is very is very um, right in this section to say that this has to do with his faithfulness to keep his covenant promises which have to do with the coming Messiah ultimately and the work that he would accomplish to redeem us from bondage to Satan and to bring us safely home into the new heavens and new earth. This idea that God's people will never suffer in this world is absurd. Think of Christ himself. We are to identify with him in his sufferings. The Scriptures say we are to suffer as He has suffered. Uh, Think about the apostles of Christ, themselves. They suffered. Think about the very early church. They suffered. Think about the Old Testament prophets who were faithful. They suffered. Think about Job. (laughs) On and on we can go. The Bible is very clear that it is not the will of the Lord to shield His people from suffering, but rather to work through them. Yes. Speaking of promises, I'm saying it for the recording. He has promised that we will suffer. It is true. If you read the scriptures you'll see that in fact he has said you will you will suffer tribulation. You you will suffer. You will be persecuted. If they hated me they're going to hate you. I mean these are the words of the Lord and yet those words are often glossed over by professing Christians today because They'd rather it be some other way. They would prefer to think of God and His will for us in different terms. But what's the point of that? I think I said it before. Ultimately, if we are not going to have the God of the Bible as our God, nor the faith that is put forth in the Scriptures as our faith, then what is the point of doing this whole Christianity thing? You can go and get encouragement somewhere else and through some other organization. Um, If we're going to profess faith in Christ and be members of his church. We need to have faith in Christ and in the Word of God. Uh, Very good. Um, The God of the Bible is a loving God, Dever says. God is love. But we must ask the question, what is God's love like? And he says that God's love is closely tied to his faithfulness. He is the God of love who has a special love for his covenant people. God has made us to reflect His image. He has made us to be in covenant with Him. So how could the Lord forgive wickedness, and yet not leave the guilty unpunished, he says. Um, so he is dealing with this question. He is wanting us to see that when we say that God is love, that His love is it is, it is especially placed upon the people that He has chosen out of the world. Uh, the Christians in the New Testament are called the beloved of God. They have had God's love set upon them. The Scriptures are also clear that others who are not in Christ are under His wrath. That is the truth. We are by nature children of wrath, the Scriptures say. Um, And so, yes, it is true. God is love. God loves Himself perfectly so for all eternity. Does that sound weird to say? Does that that sound weird to your ears that I would say that God, first and foremost, loves Himself perfectly perfectly? It is true. God is love. He has this eternal and perfect love uh, within Himself, within the triune God. For you to love yourself supremely would be sin. For God to love Himself supremely is perfectly right. For God to not love Himself supremely would be sin. And for you to not love God supremely would be sin. So God is love. He is the perfection of love within Himself. And in His mercy and grace, He is determined to bestow His love even on sinners. He gives His grace in a common way, giving good things to all, even to those who have rebelled against Him and who hate Him in their hearts. He causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. So there is this kind of general... Or common grace that God has shown to all creatures. But He has set His love in particular upon His covenant people. He set Israel apart from the nations as His special people. And and gave them good gifts and set His love upon them in a special way under the old covenant. But He has always had His elect in the world. He has always had His elect in the world. And these are those who have been called to faith in the promised Messiah both before and after His coming. Jacob I loved... And Esau I hated. That verse is in the Bible. You have to square your theology with it if you are a Christian. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. Was God wrong to hate Esau? Was God wrong to leave Esau in his sin and to withhold his loving kindness from him? No. God would not have been wrong to do the same thing for Jacob too. Except that He promised beforehand, but you understand what I mean. God would not have been wrong to withhold this loving kindness from all. The fact that He loved Jacob, and that He has set His love upon us in Christ Jesus is miraculous. It, it is, I don't know if that is the right word, it is astonishing to to consider. And and yet so many Christians are troubled by this idea that God's love is set upon a peculiar people. It is the clear teaching of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It is the clear teaching of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. From man's fall into sin it was said that there would be two seeds or two lines. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. From shortly after man's fall into sin it was established that there would be two types of people in this world. Those who belong to God through faith in the promised Redeemer and those who belong to the evil one himself. And the story of the Bible goes from there. You have Cain, born to Eve first. I think she thought he was going to be the Redeemer. Was he? He proved himself to be an evil man and of the serpent when he killed his brother Abel out of envy. Abel was killed because he was of the righteous line, and God replaced him with Seth. And then the story of the Bible goes from there. It goes through Eber and Abram. It goes through Isaac and Jacob. It goes through David. And it comes ultimately to the Messiah. And God's love is set upon all who have faith in Him before and after His coming. So is God love? Yes, absolutely. He is also holy and just. And both the holiness and justice of God and the love of God are put on, to dis- on display for us in the pages of Holy Scripture and also in the whole history of redemption. The love of God is put on display uh, most beautifully and most supremely in the cross of Jesus Christ. For there, on that cross, God accomplished our redemption. See the trouble I'm getting into without a detailed outline? Uh, time is running away from me. But with all of this considered, it forces us to develop a proper understanding of both faith and repentance. To have a right relationship with God requires that we both turn from our sins and believe upon the promised Messiah. And Dever is very good in this section to say that the two things go together, faith and repentance. Without repentance, there is no true faith, and without faith, there is no true repentance, What we are called to do in the scriptures is to turn from sin and to Christ. And yet so many would want to just have Christ but without the turning from sin. And of course those who do so will not really have confidence that their faith is true nor will those who look in upon them. Because sincere faith, authentic faith is going to involve repentance. It's going to involve obedience. Never is it perfect but there is going to be uh, those two sides to the same coin. Turning from sin into Christ. Uh, That is a mark of true and sincere faith. Uh, I know that this teaching has been popular at times. I, I, I haven't heard it in a while. But it's this idea that we can have Jesus as our Savior but not as our Lord. And that having Him as our Lord comes along with progressive sanctification I say, nonsense. To have Jesus as Savior is to have Him as Lord. In fact, if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead and confess with your mouth that He is Lord, you will be saved. So to be saved, to have Jesus as Savior, is to have Him as Lord from the start. Now in sanctification, He will come to be more and more our Lord. We will obey Him more and more sincerely and consistently. But to have Him as Savior, you must have Him as Lord. This means you must turn from your sins and to Him for the forgiveness of your sins. Lastly, uh, the God of the Bible is sovereign. He is sovereign over all things. He is God most high. There is nothing that is outside of His control. Uh, This includes our salvation. He has predestined us, and then those He has predestined, He has called. And those He has called, He has justified and adopted. He is sanctifying us. He will glorify us. We have been glorified even now through our spirit wrought union with Christ Jesus, but we will experience glory surely, if indeed we have faith in Christ. Here he says, by way of conclusion, by way of wrapping all of this up, that this kind of biblical theology is very practical, and I have come to believe this more and more with the passing of time, that um, this is not just stuff for the head, it's stuff for the heart, it's stuff for the will. Uh, To know God truly is going to have a tremendous impact upon our emotional life it's going to have a tremendous impact upon our appetites it's going to have a tremendous impact upon our obedience to him uh, what the church needs is is doctrine the church needs biblical doctrine and supremely and above all else the church needs a robust doctrine of God it is going to produce holiness in us it will produce peace it will produce joy if we know that God Is these things and so much more a creating God, a holy God, a faithful God, a loving God, and a sovereign God? I'll conclude there. Let me close in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, which is truth. I pray that we as your people would submit ourselves to your word, uh, that we would not believe uh, things because we simply want to believe them, but that we would believe things because you have shown them to be true. Uh, both in nature, but supremely in the Holy Scriptures. Give us this humility to humble ourselves before you in this way and to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.